can I can go live and here we are. So today I got a wonderful young lady with me, Brittany Charlton, and I can never do enough justice to people that join the podcast or the live recording in terms of introducing themselves. They always get around. So why don't you uh, introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about yourself and your company? Yeah, so I'm Brittany. I'm the founder of O Foods. We focus on creating allergen-friendly snacks that are vegan and gluten-free. Um, I started this a while ago. I had my own food allergies that I developed at 18, and I was rushed to the hospital. Um, found out I had a peanut and tree nut allergy. From there, I started to make my own snacks, and my mom encouraged me to try to sell them on the market. Um, we had like different iterations that I started with and landed with what we have today, which is our snacking bites and our edible cookie dough. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, now we're here today. You can find us in um, amazing retailers such as like Walmart, Healthy Planet, um, Goodness Me, and across you know 1,800 other uh, retailers as well. 1800 wow I, I think you know when we were doing research for this episode somewhere there we found number being 90 and so i said well that's that's great you know let's let's tell the world how you got got into 90 stores but now we can tell them how you went from 90 to 1800 and hopefully uh, more counting every every week but we'll shelf that that uh, question that conversation for later um i'd love to just ask you uh about yourself what was your background like before starting O foods um, what were you up to? And really, have you ever thought that one day you're going to become an entrepreneur and build a company from scratch and, and, and use that as a you know, full-time way of living? Yeah, good question. So hmm, it's interesting because I remember my daycare days. I was there. Um, our daycare really encouraged us to like do anything we wanted to do. So um, I used to make like GIMP and I would then get orders from my friends' parents and then go to the front of the like the building of the daycare and then sell my like string there, whether I made it in like letters or a person or whatever. Um, or like my friends, they saw that my dolls had pillows. So then I ended up making their dolls with pillows. And so started selling that stuff. Um, and it was really cool and fun. And my mom just always encouraged me to like, again, just try anything and see how it goes. I feel like I lost that as I started going into like school and like left daycare. Um, because school doesn't really tell you like, yeah, go ahead and build a business. It's more of like, um, like, do you want to be a doctor, accountant? Do you want to be a lawyer? You know, like, it's never like, oh, do you want to build a business? Um, and so I ended up wanting to be a lawyer. Um, so I went down that path of uh, going to school at Durham College to become a law clerk. And then I was going to go on to become a lawyer, like later on, continue through school. Um, I ended up graduating my law clerk. Um, I was going to start paralegal. And then that's when the company took off. So um, I honestly left um, and decided that, you know, school is always there if you want to later on. But the opportunities that I can get in my 20s are not necessarily going to be there. Um, so I completed, uh, like I said, my, my program. And then after that, I just decided to really focus in on my company. Um, the school, so Durham College had um, a fast start program that helped you start your business. Um, so I, I don't know that I ever really thought I would um, be doing what I'm doing now. I think I always thought like, okay, I'm going to become a, a lawyer. Um, and then kind of I uh, started this and then kind of went down the path of like continuing and iterating and then figuring out where we are today. Well, I'm sure this this world, you know, is full of wonderful lawyers, but you starting this business and potentially helping other people with allergies, you know, to access, um, you know, snacks that they can enjoy and consume responsibly is uh, 
uh, is something that's probably much more exciting and 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 worth pursuing. So you know, good for you uh, on making that very challenging decision. And I know myself as an immigrant, you know, entrepreneur, kind of having that conversation with your parents, tell them you have to leave a finance job because you have this thing on the internet you're gonna do. Um, I know the kind of uh, you know, weird looks and uh, skeptical conversations that uh, that come out of that. So, I mean, you know, that's I can I can relate to uh, to you for that. Um, so now that you're in business and you 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 started this this company and you mentioned you know it took off um, when you were pursuing or when you had that opportunity to become a law clerk. Tell me about your first sort of like memorable year in business. Maybe you can help us size it up from perspective of, you know, orders or revenue, whatever you're comfortable with. But I would love to kind of understand, you know, what was that moment for you when you're like, oh, my God, I can probably focus on this full time uh, as opposed to pursue career in law? Yeah. Um, so I think it takes a while. I think like uh, a lot of people, when they start businesses, they're like, OK, it's going to take off right away. And I don't think there was an aha moment until really, honestly, last year um, or even through like 2020 when we launched our edible cookie dough um, and we started seeing it scale. Um, but last year specifically, um, when we launched with our national distributor, UNFI in Canada, um, I feel like that solidified it, solidified where we were and what we we're going to do and how we we're going to grow. Um, and then having other partners come in and help out. So, um, you know, finding mentors in the space that could help me uh, grow our sales or um, mentors in the space to help with marketing or anything like that. Um, I feel like it really became like evident to me that uh, that anything was possible when I really started to get into that. But I guess in the beginning of the business, it was more like, um, it was more just getting into retailers like that I realized like, it, it wasn't like it it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. It was a lot harder to get your product off shelf than it is to get on shelf. And so for me, um, I think our, our cool moments, like when we launched um, Metro um, in their local program when we first like came out and then, you know, we iterated our product. We used to have like, you know, one packaging and then we went to another packaging and we iterated like three times while in there. And that helped us realize like, okay, in order to be like a national brand like we want to, there's a couple of things that we need to learn. And so I think being in those channels helped us learn um, early on what we should look like on shelf so that we can be, so that we can grow in the Canadian yeah. market. Well, okay, so let's assume I know nothing about e-commerce. I'm you know, a complete stranger, but somehow, you know, I made a, uh, you know, a bottle of spring water that I want to get placed in places like Metro. And, you know, I've, I've, I've you know, I've done a, few sales so far and it's been great you know my friends are buying it you know my uh, my family is buying it you know uh, our office is you know buying it and stocking it for other people but now i want to get into metro let's role play here what do you usually do um when you're thinking about that retail distribution are you going online and filling out an application is there a job title that you're reaching out to like a buyer or a procurement expert you know do they require you to do certain things follow certain standards you know provide certain volume or 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 pricing according to you know how they perceive your products and your competitors walk me through the, the logistics of getting that uh, uh getting that shelf space in today's 2020 world yeah uh so it really i would say first you start off with anyone else it would be more of a relationship right um at the end of the day just like you would with your e-com customers um they're your friends. They're people that you want to talk to. They're people who you want to connect with and build a story with. So 
for me, whenever I walk into a retailer um, or, you know, want to build a relationship with someone, I first, A, look up about them, like, what do I need to know about them? Um, so that when I'm having a conversation, I can connect with them right away. And then also, how can I pitch my product in a way that like isn't coming across super pitchy? Like if I came up to you and said, hey, did you know, like, you know, people die from food allergies? Like that's super pitchy. But if I came up to you and shared my story about, you know, why I started my brand and how I started my brand, I think that's a little bit different instead of being super pitchy to someone because they get so many pitches a day. Right. So yeah when they have someone coming to them authentically and communicating with them, communicating with them, like they were a friend or like an associate, then I think that's a little bit different than being super pitchy. So I'd start with that. Um, but in terms of looking for someone, LinkedIn is amazing. Um, you know, you go on LinkedIn, you find out who the buyer is. You can then pretty much figure out what their email is. If you have no different variations of uh, emails, um, but honestly, you could probably connect with them on LinkedIn is what I normally do first and ask for their email. Cause I think that's a lot better than, um, cold emailing them mm -hmm. or getting like an intro to them, um, so that they can like find out about me from someone else. Um, and then honestly, just creating a really cool deck that allows them to understand your company in a really concise and fast way. Um, so a deck shouldn't be, it should be like no more than five slides and that's like pushing it, but it should be very like, Sorry, okay, sorry. this is why I started the business. This is what my products are. This is what we're doing. This is what we can do for you. Um, because not only are they doing something for you, but you need to be doing something for them, right? So this is what I can do for you. Um, and then a thank you at the end um, with your information. Um, but then you also want to be able in that same meeting to ask what their intentions are in moving forward so that you know how to connect with them next. And you're not, either you're not like constantly following up and they are not interested or you're um, just like annoying them to the point right. where you're like, don't talk to me again, you know? Um, so you definitely want to like figure out what their intentions are on that call while you have their attention um, once you finally get that. And then obviously there's paperwork to fill out. And I think the biggest thing that people do is they get that paperwork and then they don't get it done on time or they mm -hmm. just ignore it um, because it's, it's overwhelming. Um, but if you can sit down and get that paperwork done within, I'd say within the day or you know, the next two days, then that will show them that you're pretty serious and they're willing to like work with people who um, get things done on time and they're not holding them back and having to follow up much a bunch of times. What's the advantage? And by the way, thank you for this. It sounds like a traditional sales process in the way you create, you know, pipeline, like a you know pipeline of leads, you find decision makers, you create some sort of a you know, email or LinkedIn campaign, hopefully personalize it to the to the level where, you know, they know it's not just automated, you know, hey, first name, you know, here's why my brand, you know, should be in your store. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then from there, you know, get on the call and hopefully, hopefully get a second meeting, hopefully, uh, you know, get to that paperwork. Um, I'm curious to know, Brittany, from you, from your own experience, is there a downside from being in the place like Metro or any other uh, location. So say, you know, say you are, you know, positioning yourself as a, as a, as a luxury or high end or, you know, maybe limited edition, you know, would there still be a place where, you know, you would say, you know, I still want to be in Metro and Walmart and all these other places or, or, or is that, is that sort of mutually exclusive where, you know, if you're trying to create that, you know, uh, um, high end positioning, you wouldn't necessarily want to sell through, you know, mass mass uh, distribution channels like, you know, grocery stores and, and other places. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, 
it really just depends on your product and like what you're selling, right? Um, and who you believe your channel is. So for us, like we have a premium price, um, but we're in Walmart and we're at checkout. And we believe Walmart is a really great partner for us. Um, and, you know, they're really starting to pick up on better for you snacking um, and having like a whole aisle for just better for you snacking. Right. So for us, I feel like um, it really just depends on what you're trying to do, like where you're trying to go and like what who you see as your customer. But if I think that you can sell premium to Walmart, it's just a matter of um, like what is your marketing plan behind that? What are you trying to gain? Because not every retailer do you go in there for necessarily um, like, uh, what, how do I say it? You wouldn't necessarily go into every retailer for the benefit of being in that retailer. It could just be like, okay, if I'm in this retailer, I know I'm going to be seen. And even if I'm not, if, if I'm breaking even at least, then I, I know I'm going to be seen in there and then it might push people to see me in other places mm -hmm. or um, you know, if, if I'm in this retailer, then I know that people will at least see my brand, pick it up and, and try it. And then I can go from there and start building a more premium brand from there. But it, I, I think it really just depends on like how you want to structure your brand and like what your purpose of being in that retailer is, because every, I think every th retailer for us has a purpose. Like, why are we in there? And like, what are we doing in there? Um, we don't just like take on doors just just to have a door count like uh, you know we're never like oh yeah we're in walmart just because we want to be in walmart it's it has to be strategic and it has to be something that makes sense for the business long term and also uh in the short term too while we're growing and scaling very interesting i i um i know you i saw the video on the, on linkedin actually about you uh show showcasing that you got into walmart um and so you're you know walking by the shelves and picked up the products and i thought it's really nice um, it's also quite difficult from my understanding to get into a place like Walmart. And I know we spoke about Metro just a few minutes ago. Um, does the process of getting into Walmart any different? And what was your experience like specifically with this, with, with, you know, with this retailer? Yeah. So with Walmart, it was a little bit different. We ended up going to a show, um, or an event, um, with WeConnect and we met the buyers there. So it was basically like a round table of all the buyers together. Um, you have five minutes um, per table uh, to pitch your product, tell them about it, and then they can give you feedback. Um, I got sat at a table for um, the buyer that did Impulse uh, and she was the director at the time um, and she was managing that area. And so she took my product right away and ran it to her buyer, which is really cool. Um, and then um, I ended up meeting her buyer. Her buyer ended up leaving to go to, um, I think, Vancouver. Um, so she's looking for a new buyer and she's like, hey, when I have a new buyer, I will contact you. Like, I'm so interested. But what was, what was great is in that time with Metro, we were able to test our product, know that our current packaging wasn't going to work in retail. Um, and had I launched in Walmart at that time, I don't think we would have done as well. But mm -hmm. then- why, 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 why wouldn't it work? What's what was so different about the packaging yes. in retail versus online? I have. <laughs> so you can see the difference. Yeah. Oh, okay. So there's oh, it's kind of blurring. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. But, Just closer um, to the middle. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you yeah. go. So you so can the see the difference, right? Yeah. So we were targeting parents uh, with kids and we're calling it munchies. It's not gonna work. Um, there's a window. It just doesn't look as appealing. Whereas our current one is very like structured. Um, it sits really well on shelf. The rays help that this pops out a little bit on shelf as well. And mm -hmm. it just looks a lot better. So a, we had a lot of time to iterate and figure that out. Um, 
But then when the time was right for Walmart to, uh, you know, take us on, we were able to launch there and, and, and uh, scale our company from there. Interesting. But I mean, there's very little analytics that you usually, I mean, they wouldn't tell you this, how many people pass by your product, you know, in any given week and this, how many people, you know, picked up your product, but didn't proceed to the checkout, you know, or like, you know, in the, in the, in the traditional technology space, you know, everything about your Shopify, you know, yeah. uh, pur purchasing behavior, you know, how many people add to cart, how many people, you know, bounce, you know, what's the number of people that view each product page, but it's very, challenging to do that in the in the physical retail so i mean to me it just sounds more like an art than a science to to make that decision and then make it right meaning that you know that packaging that ended up being blue could very well be pink but how do you know how do you a b test you know pink and blue blue you know types of packaging on the website is just a button color and you can you know a b test uh, and and split the traffic and things like that but it's impossible to do it in real life so i'm just fascinated all you know i'm i'm rumbling here because i'm fascinated by you know making these unscalable decisions in a very uh uh you know in a in a, in a very um uh, you know technically uh, challenging environments, if you will. I don't know what the right term is, but it's just hard, right? So how do you, what sort of insight does Walmart or Metro or any other location where you sell actually send to you? And how does that, how does that influence your decision-making? Yeah, so they send us POS sales. Uh, like you can see that stuff, but you're right. You can't see if someone picked it up, put it down and walked to another aisle and picked it up again. Like, I really don't know. Um, but a really big thing that we started doing from the beginning was we go into our stores. We um, At first we were stocking our shelves. We mm. don't do that anymore, but what we do is face our shelves. So what that means is like we make our shelves look like really pretty um, and do like make them look how we want them to look for the consumer. So mm. um, in that time of doing that, when people walk by, uh, we would just ask them like, hey, like, hey, what do you think about this, right? Like, and get feedback. Or if someone picked it up and put it back down while we were like kind of in the area, we like we'd honestly just walk up and be like, "Hey, why did you put it down?" And then they'd tell us like, "Hey, <laughs> it has bungee on it. Like we don't like you know we don't like that name or um or you know what? Like one person called me and she's like, "Hey, your price point at one time when we were first launching, she's like, your price point is way too low. And if you're saying you're allergen friendly, vegan, gluten free, I just don't believe you." And so, you know, that was a really great like conversation I had with a customer and, and that was like an hour long conversation of like, okay, well, I want this or I think this. And, you know, it, it was, I think like people for us, at least they've, they've called us, they've looked at the phone, they've emailed us, they've tell, like told us what they're looking for. But then there's also like things that you can see. So when we go to retail and we have a window, for instance, um, on our packaging, I don't know about you, but I'm someone who likes to press on things. And so mm -hmm. if you're pressing on something at retail, you can imagine once the, it gets the end consumer, it's probably going to look really smushed, right? Um, and so if there's no window, someone's not going there, squeezing it and, and touching it all the time. Um, and that helps with like preserving the product as well and making sure that there's no like sun rays getting in there and all that stuff. So for us, I feel it was just like, what looks good on the shelf? Take it, go there, put it on the shelf, step away. Does that product still stand out to me? Go walk away from it, like come back and like, does it catch your eye? Mm -hmm. And um, one of my mentors just said, like, what do you want people to feel when they see your packaging? Right. And um, and that's kind of like what led our packaging design uh, for everything. And then also just understanding that we wanted extension. So if we want an extension to the brand, how do we extend it and allow for the brand to look great on shelf altogether? It, 
What's your post-purchase strategy? And this is very tactical. And I'm just trying to understand if you, you know, are building a community or have some sort of a, you know, retention um, strategy in place. What do you usually do when somebody purchases that product, whether that's, you know, on Shopify or, you know, somehow you're able to track down that that person or that, you know, B2B uh, maybe organization that purchased, you know, large volume uh, for themselves. What, what do you usually do? How does the follow up look and what sort of what sort of uh, community or retention strategies uh, you, you've put in place for, for Whole Foods? Yeah, good question. So with our marketing team, they put that all together, but we there's a couple of things we do. So as soon as you get the package in your in, in the mail, uh, there's something that says like you just picked up your favorite snack or um, like welcome to the inclusive snacking family or something like that to make someone feel like they've just joined the community. Um, on the back of that, you do get like a code uh, that allows you to, you know, put your review online so that you're able to get um, a 20% off or 10% mm -hmm. off, you know, um, uh, discount on your next order. Um, and then, you know, we stay connected. So even if, um, like we email people, but we don't email to be annoying and we're not always in your inbox. Um, we more email them like updates about what we're doing behind the scenes. If they want to follow, mm -hmm. we let people follow certain things that they want to. So whether that's behind the scenes, we have dough runs that we do online, um, which is just like basically our, our sales and marketing person going to different retailers, seeing what that looks like um, behind the scenes, meeting with people um, and retailers. Um, but that's what we focus on right now. We're really starting to build um, that like behind the scenes and what we really want to do. But we really haven't, um, we haven't had, we've mostly been focused on retail and moving to e-com. So that's been a really big lesson mm. for us. And like, how do we sell online in a way that's going to be authentic and bring people along with our journeys um, as they feel with grabbing something in store? Yeah, I'm I'm genuinely enjoying this conversation. By the way, everybody watching, please leave your comments so we can potentially ask questions right now in real time. I have so many questions that I want to ask. I know this conversation can go on forever, although we have a limited time window. Uh, but if you do have questions, you know, drop them in the chat, and I see a few few uh, few people already uh, complimented your new packaging. So you know, okay. it, uh, it seems to be working. But uh, you know, in terms of consumable products, and we see it a lot with you know pet food and you know cosmetics and just different types of products have recently been experimenting with subscription models. You know, every month you'll get a you know razor to shave your beard, or you'll get you know a uh, you know a can of uh, you know cat food because you know you need that much you know every month, and you want to reduce friction for your consumers by creating you know repeat purchases. Um, have you at all thought about, you know, what would your direct to consumer subscription would look like, if at all? And uh, what are your thoughts on, 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 on a business model like that, where it's not necessarily a one off and then you're chasing them with coupons and follow ups, but it's more or less a commitment uh, and they have to sign up for a period of time? Yeah, that's so funny. Uh, we actually had a call this morning and we we're talking about subscription models. And then on Thursday, we have a call to like figure out and how to like put that all together. So. On Thursday, I could probably tell you a little bit more. We'll follow up with you on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, we, that's what we thought, like, too, like, how cool would it be to have cookie dough on subscription um, or Bites or even our next product that we're launching? Like, how cool would that be? So we're trying to put that all together and, and figure out what that looks like for us. But mm -hmm. it probably will look like, um, you know, getting 10% off your order um, each time you 
are subscribed to something um, so that you can, you know, get it straight to your door. And then it's like, we also know that that's, you know, um, a subscription that's coming in, if that makes sense. So it's not like a sale that we're hoping for, but a sale that's kind of sitting there and, and there. And it's it just helps us streamline a lot more and plan a lot more of our inventory. Yeah. Um, somebody suggested to me, I think it was Ivan, one of, uh, one of the people on our team, that you could potentially experiment with three or six month upfront payment. Uh, so the money actually gets in your bank account upfront and then they're locked into a three month or six month or a 12 month commitment and you can give them a you know, discount of you know, 20% for doing that. But it's you know, potentially beneficial from cash flow perspective. Speaking of money, how, does it, how much does it cost to launch a product for the first time? I mean, you're probably hiring some people, you're probably creating samples. Uh, you're probably shipping them shipping them out potentially launching a shopify you know website or amazon listing uh, but i'm curious you know between the time when you uh you know conceive this idea for you know all foods you know a uh, um, um accessible snacking company and 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 when you're finally able to be either on the shelf or you know online how much money does it cost and what's your what's your typical expense look like on the on the on the you know on the on the on the on the, on the monthly basis yeah that's a good question um i think to start a company you can probably start a company with five thousand to be honest with you if you're scrappy and you think about it and you launch um if you want to start with like everything that you might want to have so that's like packaging a box that sits on shelf um with some marketing money you probably are looking at anywhere between 20 to 25 and then upward from there right um but it's all about like what your plan is and how you want to launch um you can test the market with five thousand, see how it goes and then put more in if you wanted to or you can go all in and put you know a million dollars in there if you wanted to but i think um for me my model is always like test it first get pre-orders make sure that it's like something that people want so even for our next product uh you know we started reaching out to retailers early making sure it's what they wanted a couple of, of them asked us for like sustainable ingredients. So we went back to our co-manufacturer said, okay, hey, let's let's look at some ingredients that we can make sustainable. Um, and then came back with the, you know, with those ingredients sustainable. And then it's like, okay, we've now met what those re retailers wanted. But had I just launched the product, like made it, launched it on the market and hoped for the best, like I would have found out a lot of retailers would say no to me because that ing one ingredient wasn't sustainable, right? Mm -hmm. So um, for us, we we mostly try to do like pre-orders and mm -hmm. then uh, go ahead and launch probably a month or two later once it's uh, ready to go. Mm -hmm. And in terms of like financial instruments or a way to finance these five to $25,000 and, you know, maybe you can put yourself in the shoes of, you know, an up and coming, you know, uh, direct to consumer brand. I mean, we had guests on a podcast from, you know, sleep out and they've bootstrapped through uh uh, fundraising campaign or a crowdfunding campaign. I think they've done, you know, pre-sales exactly one year ago, and that allowed them to, you know, kick, kickstart on Kickstarter uh, by, you know, crowdfunding some of those investments. And then we had another guest on the show uh, from local laundry, Dustin and Connor, who went to the bank and, you know, to cut a line of credit. And, you know, because they had backgrounds in, in finance, you know, they, they, they managed to negotiate a pretty good deal. Um, and then I know some, some, some companies raise, angel investment and venture funding and you know there's you know grants and other things what's your experience like with you know money side of things and what's your preferred way to get to that twenty five thousand uh, dollars if you had to do it over again today um 
I think the same thing I did. Uh, honestly, I, I worked since I was like probably 14 and I just saved my money. So <laughs> I just like you take a little bit of money and start saving it and put it away. And then, you know, you'll have some cash to do something that you want to do uh, and then try something. And um, I'm all about trying something. If it doesn't work, cool, go back, try it again kind of thing. Um, but I'd say start with like, start with your own money. If you can, depending on what you're starting, obviously, if you need a million dollars, like I'd say, build a cash flow, see what you actually need. Um, most times you probably don't need a million dollars to launch something. So if you can launch something on a budget, like 5,000, test it, make sure it's something that people want. I'd say do that. And then if you wanted to do the 25, it's the same thing. Um, really just saving up your own money or going to the bank or there's a lot of grants as well. Um, and then there's loans that you can look into for entrepreneurs, right? Um, that you can get from many, many places uh, if you're under 29 years old. Interesting. No, I, pre I appreciate that. Um, speaking of starting an e-commerce company, I mean, I know, you know, it's, it's getting easier and easier to launch a website and, you know, there are places where you can, you know, import products if you're into that sort of, you know, business model or work with agencies to, you know, co-create products and, you know, advertise them, et cetera. Um, but it does require a team. You need talent. You need people that understand, you know, finances and logistics and marketing and, you know, probably, probably spend a lot of time with customers and distribution partners. So, you, you know, you need an account manager. Um, what does your team look like today and how did you go about bringing on board, you know, wonderful talent that you have? Yeah, good question. Um, I think for me, I honestly just think about what am I not great at and then how can I get someone that's great at that? Um, so if I don't really enjoy uh, jumping on a camera and you know, making TikToks, uh, for example. So, you're, doing, you're doing great. We'll send you some TikToks after this. We'll we'll cut up this this episode and we'll send you some 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 wisdom. Go awesome. ahead. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I don't really love it. You know, I'll do it, but it's not something that I'm passionate about. So, um, you know, I knew for me, I needed to hire someone in marketing, and so we brought on um, Julia, who does our sales and marketing. Um, another thing that I'm really great at is building those relationships with like bigger retailers, even small ones as well. Um, but it, like any retailer really, but I knew that in order to focus on the really big ones that I wanted to get into, I needed someone who could like hyper focus in on the smaller ones. So having Julia there to help out with that sales side of things that helps out a lot. Um, and then we also noticed that we needed to really pick up on like Instagram and, you know, really figuring out how to um, be on TikTok more and make more of that. Um, so that came in with hiring another person for marketing coordinator to help us out. Um, and then the last role or the last two. So I knew of that in terms of like um, packaging, I could go to places like Fiverr or, um, you know, different places. I think there's like 99 designs and stuff like that, which is great. But then I know for myself, I wanted someone that was on my team that could like get back to us instantly, just work on our brand and like help us scale um, a little bit quicker. And so we have Vivian who does our um, graphic design, like anything in terms of like packaging, um, sell sheets, anything that we need, uh, a presentation she does, which is amazing. Um, and then it just keeps our brand in line. So like whenever you see your brand look one way, it's exactly that same way every single time. 
And then um, the last person would be an admin. I knew that I needed someone to look after like, like administration stuff, like paperwork um, and make sure that we're on the ball with it and that's always handed in on time. And so um, our production manager does admin slash production um, and she manages our co-manufacturer as well. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty you know neat team. And I, I love how logical you were about sort of like adding them. Um, do you do these roles yourself and then you get really well and you pass on that process to you know, people that you're trying to bring in, teach them, like, hey, here's how it's done. Now go make it better. Or do you recognize that you might not be the best person at, you know, say TikTok, like what you said, but, and you're bringing on somebody to actually figure it out from scratch. So say, you know, strategically, we want to be on TikTok. We don't have an account today. Go figure it out. How, how do you approach that? Uh, both ways, actually. So um, when it comes to like production and men, um, that was something that I really keyed into and I knew how to do. Um, and that's where most of my focus was because we were producing ourselves and then moved to a co-packer. So um, when we were producing by ourselves, I kind of knew um, exactly how much time something was supposed to take, where we're supposed to go, how we're supposed to finish and like what the whole plan was. And then I would just train someone to do exactly that and be me, like basically multiply myself in that situation so that I can go somewhere else. But when it came to social media, like I only knew what I knew, I could probably, um, you know, I, I know influencer marketing really well, I can do that. But anything else that came with like um, making TikToks or like that, like Julia is like queen of that. So I just let her do that. Um, and then Julia is going to get unsolicited hiring offers after this interview. Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she's wonderful. And speaking about influencer marketing, I saw Armin from NoDab just popped up in the chat and say, yeah, go, Julia. Uh, so, you know, clearly you guys know know each other. Um, but no, I I, I, I just love that. Um, we had another question in the chat uh, from, from, from Gora that says, how many people would you say is good to have to launch a product? At what point do you start hiring a team? So, I mean, from, from my understanding, you started by yourself and then, or did you have co-founders that that you know were helping you out and then you you scale a team at, at what point do you start hiring i guess that's the question um i would say good question um i didn't hire right away so i waited a, a long time i would say and i mostly used my friends which i don't know if that was the best option but <laughs> it was uh, it was great at the time um but i would say like if you can use your family friends i would say get their help um, so I'd have like my friends come in and like when we had hot chocolate, package hot chocolate with me. Um, and then I don't know, I'd just like pay them for the day of like helping me with like, either, like food. Chocolate. yeah, food or like, yeah, hot chocolate. Um, um, and then even going to events, it was just like my, my friends, I would just ask for help. So, um, I didn't hire a team until like, I really felt like, um, A, I can pay someone and B, that it was going to make sense um, moving forward. Like, does this person actually make sense? And like, do I actually know what I need them to do, right? And if you don't know what you need someone to do, they can waste a lot of time with you. Gore, I hope that answers your question. Feel free to connect with Brittany afterwards. I'm, I'm sure she can uh, she can tell you more or, or uh, you know, follow her journey for, for more answers. Um, so, I mean, you know, we, we spent the first, you know, half and we're, you know, about 15 to 20 minutes uh, uh, before this conversation ends, and I really, I really want to make sure that you know I uh, touch base not just on you and your journey and 
you know, your personal story and motivation and hiring, but, you know, more or less some, some of the tactical things. And, you know, if you, if you can share that with us, that would be great. If no, you know, our loss, but I would love to maybe ask you about marketing, you know, in today's world, we are, you know, really, we have the abundance of options, right? You know, influencer marketing, paid advertising, social media, which is organic, you know, tactically speaking, you know, if I gave you $500, uh, and uh, I said, Brittany, produce the highest return on investment for, uh, on that $500. I mean, what would you do? Would you go into another retail store? So potentially, you know, spend a few hours on, uh, on B2B sales. Would you put that straight into, you know, paid advertising or retargeting? Like, what are the channels that really appeal to you today? And what, what would you recommend other, other, other merchants potentially trying to grow their sales? Hmm. I think it uh, depends on what product you have and what you're telling me to sell. But I think for us right now, um, we're starting to look at like paid advertising. And then we're also looking at like influencer marketing. Like we know the power of it. But then we're also looking at um, like what makes the most sense. Like does it make sense to do paid advertising or does it make more sense to do influencer? Um, and like connect with more people and build the community that way. So I think right now we're still trying to figure that out for ourselves. But I'd say like, depending on your product and what you believe you can do with that product, um, you'd have to figure it out. Like, I, I think for us, we don't know. We're trying to figure it out too. So mm. when someone knows, let me know. Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate the honesty. Another tactical question that I had was, you know, getting into 1600 stores sounds like a lot of business development. Are there any tactics? And I, I hate using word shortcuts, but I, I'm still gonna ask you, are there any shortcuts? Do you, do you use distributors? Do you sort of get into multiple stores at once by following certain strategies? Or is it really a hand-to-head -head combat and you're you know, DMing and getting into one, one store at the time? How do you approach that, that B2B distribution? Yeah, so we're in about 1800, but um, <laughs> uh, uh, it really depends. So we, we do have a distributor um, we have a distributor called Unify in Canada, and uh, we use them to distribute right across Canada. Um, in terms of like, it depends on like where you're going. For us, we don't use any brokers. And then for, yeah, like we have in the past, but I would say like if you can hold out until like you feel like you know how to do the role yourself so that you know what you're asking someone to do. Um, but I think for us, like we use a distributor, we use their sales team to help us get into like certain meetings if we need. Um, we we try to find most of the accounts ourselves though. We like honestly just look on LinkedIn. So anything that we want, we're like, okay, this is the person we need to connect with. Let's figure out their email and then let's pick up the phone and call them or email them um, and then connect with them or like show up at the office, I guess, prior to COVID um, to see <laughs> like they would, you know, try some samples on the spot but i would say like it's honestly just getting out there and like introducing yourself going from there no i i, I respect that i guess the other thing just to follow up on that what i wanted to know is and you, you sort of answered that but uh you know do you do you reach out to a distributor to get yourself into that first store and then you build on top of that yourself or do you get into the first store yourself and then you go to a distributor and kind of hand them that playbook and say, you know, go get me more stores just like this one. Um, but are you are you in the U.S. and Canada? Are you just in Canada? Where? How do you think geographically in terms of expansion? And you know, does this playbook that you're using to get into 1,800 stores? I got that down this time. 
Uh, did that playbook to get into 1800 stores work in a similar way in different geographies, or is it always sort of reinventing and iterating and and, and learning and applying cultural differences and, and things of that nature? Yeah. So I think it's just, um, so back to what you said about the distributor, I think when you are using a third party to help grow um, anything, you want to think that like, you want to think of them as they are, right? So a distributor is not going to sell for you. They're not going to do anything but move your box from A to B. If they so happen to introduce you to someone or like a retailer or uh, give you a contact, that's great. But their main job is to move that box from A to B and that's it. So once you start to think of that and you're aware of that, then you know, okay, even though they have salespeople and their job is to do A and B and that's it. Um, and you're able to keep that in mind, then you're able to obviously flow a lot easier. Because I think for me before, I used to think, well, you're a distributor, you have a sales team, why can't you sell for me too? Like, why do I need my own salesperson, right? But um, at the end of the day, they have over 30,000 brands that they're trying to also sell. So the odds of you being, you know, picked out and sourced as one of the ones that are going to go forward, um, it's probably slim to none. And it's just, you have to have your own people doing that. But I think like if you are trying to grow in different regions, it's there's different like sales tactics. Like I can't use the same ones here in Ontario that I'd probably go use in Vancouver or in Montreal. I think it's like growing one by one and then account by account. And it's like brick by brick. Like if you're building a house, right, you're not going to just have a house sitting there ready for you, but it's built brick by brick and putting the pieces together to match um, whatever you're trying to achieve. Um, but in terms of for us, we, uh, we are only in Canada right now. And then we have a distributor that's, um, we're signed with ready to go, uh, for next year, um, in 2023. Got it. And then in terms of online, so, you know, we spoke about retail, but in terms of like listing your brands on, you know, these wholesale marketplaces that can sometimes promise, you know, you'll get picked and, you know, somebody will place an order. Have you tried any of that? Did that did that work at all, or is it mostly just retail and mostly you know reaching out directly to them? Yeah, it's mostly just retail and reaching out directly. We do um, connect with like on tail online retail, uh, which is like well.ca or yeah. um, Natura Market, for example, um, and that helps us a lot um, selling through them because they already have a a market ready that wants to buy, right? And so whenever we think about our online strategy, it's mostly like pushing out to those channels because mm -hmm. they have the means to send um, one product that they really wanted to or two, you know, um, and they already have it all structured and ready to go. Whereas from us building from scratch, we haven't really put the pieces together to be able to sell what like we sell online, but um, to sell as well as mature market or well.ca would. Got it. Got it. Um, Let's talk about shipping, right? Um, before kind of diving into e-commerce, I didn't realize that, you know, half of your job is everything that happens before the sale, but then there is a second half of your job, which is, oh, great. I just got a purchase order. How do I move this box from, you know, my warehouse to that person's front door? And this is where, you know, a lot of, I find, you know, financial speak, speaking, unit economics sometimes starts breaking if you're not careful, but also, you know, the experience and fulfillment and just, you know, um, it, it, there is so much more to to e-commerce than, than just making that sale. Um, talk to me a bit about that, right? Like, what's what was your first impression about 
you know, supply chain and shipping and logistics. Um, and I'm not talking about purchasing and sourcing your product. I want to talk about that slightly separately in a minute. But, you know, after that sale is made, you know, how do you think about shipping? How did you learn about, you know, comparing options and, you know, shipping in bulk or, you know, not sure what strategies you use, but, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, direct to consumer sales, is it just going to Canada Post once in a while or is there something a little bit more sophisticated than that? Talk to me about that. Yeah, good question. So when it comes to shipments, um, honestly, we were using Canada Post, which was great. Um, but then we found that um, when we wanted to sell, like send like two boxes, like let's say someone ordered a lot online and I couldn't just send, you know, one box, um, I would have to pay $11 all over again instead of it just being maybe a $2 upgrade to add an extra box in, right? So um, I started asking around in the industry to see who else, like what people use. And then someone told me ship time. So we use ship time to help us out with, um, with that, with our shipping. Um, I believe when I went to start at fast, we met someone else and they, I think they're called ship now or another company, but, um, they do similar things, uh, to ship time, but, um, it's honestly just finding like different places and then who you want to use, right? So we mostly use ship time just because it's easier and I don't really care to shop a rate for a dollar off, in mm -hmm. my opinion, but I do care for uh, the bulk saving, whereas um, I get a lot of a, a big discount using ship time than going to Canada Post for everything. So on our website, um, it is Canada Post, but if someone were to buy large quantities, um, then it would be through ship time um, and ship time integrates, which is really nice and helps out. Yeah. And I saw Shopify did recently a deal with either Shippo or trying to remember another another ship related name. But uh, I think it's available through the dashboard if you if you want to, um, you know, um, bypass Canada Post. Um, but the other the other question I had was around like, you know, fulfillment. So I guess do you store those products in your in your you know fulfillment center or or you know warehouse in your garage like where's all that you know all that all that goodness stored and and by the way what's the shelf life on some of these things are these easily perishable and you know expire quickly or do they because i'm assuming since they you know they got so much organic uh so many organic ingredients and their their shelf life is not that that extended as you know some of the ones done with preservatives can you talk to me about that yeah, so um, our edible cookie doughs last for 12 months in the fridge, which is amazing. Um, and then our snacking bites last for 10 months um, unopened. Mm -hmm. uh, so pretty good shelf life on all That's of amazing. them. Yeah. Um, but then in terms of, um, sorry, your first question. Where are you storing them? Where do we store? Um, so we store at our corp, our co-packer right now. And then anything that's like, smaller samples that are going out to retailers, I'll store them. Um, but we don't use fulfillment centers at all, um, maybe one day, but right now we have no need just because we have a co-manufacturer that's also able to ship for us. Mm -hmm. And then we're mostly shipping like, you know, pallets. So um, shipping pallets, uh, if we have our own warehouse, we just kind of keep it all in house and not move it around too many times. Right, so right now, again, just trying to understand right now, the order comes in, say, you know, say somebody wants a thousand units of, you know, cookie dough, uh, edible cookie dough, and then you you co-manufacture that through your co-manufacturer and then they ship it directly. So in other words, you're not really carrying that much inventory 
uh, maybe except for direct to consumer, which is where you know some of that is probably start somewhere. Well, no, uh, the our product is made, um, so we mostly like we look at our sales for the month and then what we want to achieve um, and what mm -hmm. we believe we're going to achieve on the month, and then we produce for that. So we try to produce at least once a month and keep ahead of time, or try to keep ahead at least two months in advance. Right. Um, so that we have enough stock for at least two to three months at a time, depending on the product. Um, and if we can keep it in stock, like with our snacking bites, it's a little bit harder um, with the machinery that we were using before, but, um, and then the orders that sort of coming in, but now that we're moving um, everything to our co-manufacturer, it becomes a lot easier to forecast and figure out how much we need and how much we want to keep on hand. We try to keep everything as fresh as possible. So we don't, produce a lot on hand. Um, we try to literally produce what we believe we're going to need and then sell that and then keep going from there. Got it. Got it. No, thank, thank you for explaining that. Um, I guess the, the first, the other question that I, you know, wanted to dive into is really, you know, sourcing the ingredients, sourcing, you know, um, I'm, you know, I'm sure you had to do your research. And by the way, you know, when somebody wants to launch like a chocolate bar or an ice cream, where do you go to get those ingredients? Are there places like where you can research these suppliers and compare rates and compare their ingredients and you know make sure that you know you know they, they can service you or or did you have to sort of go out there and in the wild west and just Google search you know uh, cookie dough you know Canada enter and see you know maybe who is manufacturing some of your competitors like what was your strategy around finding the right people to work with? Yeah. So when it comes to ingredients, it's a little bit harder in Canada because we don't necessarily advertise as well. So you find a lot of like U.S. companies when you're looking for ingredients, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But um, when it comes to ingredients, it was just honestly typing on like whatever I'm looking for and then putting wholesale on the end of it um, so I can find it a little bit cheaper. And then I found um, other supply companies. And then when I'd call them, if they didn't have what I needed, I would just say, hey, do you know anyone else? And then they would tell me. Um, and then we would just honestly keep going down the list and banking those companies um, and kind of going from there. And then we end up finding someone who knows someone who does ingredients and has it. Mm -hmm. um, but Melissa on our team does all of our ordering and um, and finding uh, ingredients as well. But mostly connecting with other founders as well and saying like, hey, who do you use for mm -hmm. X, Y and C? And then they'll tell you. And then that's another you know, supplier that you now have in your back pocket. We try to have at least three to four um, suppliers for one ingredient so that, you right. know, if something happens, we we have options um, and, and they're all different prices, obviously. So going from there. I understand. And then from from the equipment perspective, right? Because, you know, presumably, you know, you, you need a commercial kitchen to make these uh, make these types of products. Um, and then it's not like a small batch, you can probably do it yourself and, you know, just adding all the ingredients together. Um, but to make a you know, larger batch, you need equipment. And was, was there a lot of customization when it came to say, this is what we need and this is what we need? Or is, or is this more or less, a, you know, pre, pretty standardized type of equipment that you, can, that you can purchase and kind of stack it all together in the, in the, in the kitchen and make sure that, uh, you know, it, it, it does the job? How much, how much work? You know, did you put into finding the right, you know, mixers and, you know, fridges? And I have no idea what else goes into that, but maybe you can tell us. 
Yeah, so when it comes to our, our machinery, so what we wanted to do from the very beginning was um, I never wanted to own my own manufacturing. I, I wanted to have a co-manufacturer that produced for us and that so we didn't really have to think about how our product became made other than like the quality ingredients and um, and the ethics behind it. But other than that, I really just wanted the product to be made by someone else so that we didn't have to build a team. Um, prior to, so this month we just finished uh, creating our product by ourselves like completely. And now it's moved straightly, strictly to a co-packer um, and they produce everything for us. But um, when it comes to machinery, it was more just looking at like, okay, what do we need? Who does something similar to us? And then how can we partner with them um, to produce our products. So, you know, when we're looking for um, our cookie dough, I went into looking for like ice cream companies that do what I do because like finding a cookie dough company was probably not going to happen. Um, so I looked for ice creams. I looked for cupcakes, muffins, bread, uh, just different companies that did what I did because they all have a mixing machine that I'm going to need. Mm -hmm. um, and then in terms of other like machines, it's honestly just connecting with people in the industry and saying, hey, what do you use for your products? And most people are willing to share. So like when it comes to our um, Bytes machine that we're just starting to like figure out and, and we're going to go start using, um, that machine honestly just came from like seeing another company in the US and saying, hey, who do you use? And then he's like, and I'm like, hey, I'll send you some product if you can tell me. And then, uh, you know, he's like, yeah, no problem. Here you go. And uh, so yeah, he'll get some product and be able to try it. And he gave me a contact that's probably going to be great for us. And uh, and we're not competitors, which is great. So mm -hmm. it allows for us to get a machine that we need. And um, so, yeah, I think it's just honestly reaching out. Like if you see people with products that are similar, reach out to them, say, hey, where did you get, the, like, how do you produce? Um, and most people will tell you how they produce and what they're using. And they're, they're more than happy to share their journey with you. Got it. Got it. Brittany, I know we're running out of time. I just have one potentially two very quick questions I'm trying to sneak in. And these are really rapid fire. So don't give too much thought to them. But really, you know, if you were to go back, you're starting this company today, what would be potentially three things you would do differently? Uh, three things I do differently. Hmm. I would. Um, three things I would do differently. I don't know. I would probably believe in myself a little bit more. So believe that I could do it a lot quicker and a lot faster. So that means like I can probably go into any retailer I wanted to. I could, you know, connect with Unify earlier on. Um, and I would say like knowing that, like knowing my own potential as well um, and not holding myself back. Got it. And then the last one is really just one thing. One thing, one thing you believe helped you go from, you know, 80 or 90, however many stores that we've put in into the description, which was wrong, uh, to, you know, whooping 1800 stores today. What's that one thing that really helped you rapidly scale O Foods? Hmm. I think building relationships with people and letting them know a little bit more about me, uh, but not just like me within the company, but like me as a person. So like when I jump on a call, um, like for example, with like our Walmart buyer, not getting straight to business and being like, okay, well, I don't want to waste her time. So let me just get straight to it. Um, cause it's absolutely rude, but maybe even being like, Hey, how's your day going? How is your week? Like, you know, is there anything that we can do for you as a supplier? Um, you know, like just asking and like inquiring and caring about people genuinely, um, and building those relationships, I think have helped. 
I love it, Brittany. Thank you so, so much for joining and spending a whole hour with us, sharing really the learnings and, you know, your experience building this brand. I'm sure a lot of people took away uh, took away from uh, from this conversation. Is there anything you want them to do, whether that's go on the website or follow you on LinkedIn? Just let us know what where we can where we can find you and where we can you know try some of that cookie dough. Uh, we'll 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 be uh, would love to follow you as well. Yeah, so um, you can find us on Instagram and TikTok at uh, ohh foods. Oh, sorry, ohh foods, <laughs> and then our website is ohh foods. Dot com. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Brittany. Thank you.